of God's fatherhood very well. It's difficult to envision God as father. And sometimes our fathers have modeled that poorly on one side versus the other where they were absent, they weren't involved in training you or teaching you what was right or disciplining you when they should have disciplined you. They sort of just let you do whatever you wanted to do. And you resent that because looking back, or maybe now because you are a dad, you realize that wasn't good for you. And maybe you were raised by a father who was the opposite of that. So involved, always looking over your shoulder, disciplining you harshly, more harshly than they should have, never extending a hug, never saying I love you, and that's messed you up a little bit. But think about how Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father, it's a... It's, it's endearing to think that this creator God would even meet a prodigal child out on the road, falling on his neck and kissing him, as Jesus teaches us in the parable of the prodigal son. But yet, it's our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's not an earthly father. He is a heavenly father, and his name is holy. And so the fact that he falls on our neck and embraces us and lavishes grace and love upon us does not mean that that erases the standards by which we are to live. He is a father who trains. He is a father who disciplines. Why? Because he loves. And in this passage that we are going to look at this morning, we're going to see God at work in a way that you might look at it and go, wow, really harsh, as has been maybe our temptation throughout the book of Numbers. We're in chapter 25. We've seen this numerous times. But I think you will also see that God does it to purify and to protect. It's for our good that God is this perfect heavenly Father. So let's not be the kinds of dads or the kinds of Christians that react and do the opposite of how our fathers failed us. But let's do what God presents as godly and right. So we care about holiness. We care about correction. We take rebukes when we need it. Why? Because God uses those things to move us forward and to survive our wilderness journey. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we are thankful that you perfectly model what it means to be a father, to be a leader, to be a shepherd. And God, we thank you that whatever our past, whatever our dads uh, have been or are, that you are ultimately our real father and that our human fathers have been put there to model our real father. And Lord, help us to be have forgiving and understanding hearts where our human fathers fail. For those of us who are dads, we, we know we will never perfectly meet that bar. We thank you for your leadership. We thank you that ultimately the leadership of our kids is not on us. Ultimately, it's on you. But help us to picture you, image you, reflect you in our homes. And as we look at this passage, Father, may all of us come away with a better picture of what it means to worship this Father who's holy, this Father who's heavenly, and allow that to permeate the rest of our prayers, the rest of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn with me to Numbers chapter 25? Numbers chapter 25. Book of Numbers early on in the Bible, 
fourth book in the Bible, so not too hard to find if you're finding your way in the Bible for the first time. Uh, but if you look at Numbers chapter 25, the whole chapter is kind of one unit, one story. And it's coming out of this episode where the people of Israel have been protected by God. He's, he was asked to curse them uh, by Balaam the prophet, and he did not. He protected them and just re-emphasized his blessing on his people, his blessing on his children. And then we find God's anger kindled, God's anger aroused at his people because they committed adultery on him. Look at verses 1 through 5. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people, the people of Israel, to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people of Israel ate and bowed down to their gods, the Moabite gods. Verse 3, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. There's a Canaanite deity of fertility. You see this Baal god throughout the Old Testament, a frequent source of pain and entrapment for Israel. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. You need to understand that this is a, a, a situation where if God doesn't intervene, they will all be lost. They will all worship a false father. They will all see themselves out of this family if he doesn't step in. And we have to wrestle with this anger theme where there is a wrong kind of indignation, a wrong kind of anger. There's, you know, there's uh, selfish anger and drunk anger, and there's all kinds of ways in which our dads display anger, and they shouldn't. But there is a right kind of anger. And God's is the right kind. It's kindled against Israel because this is the way in which they should go. This is what's good for them. This is what glorifies him. And they're going the other way. If he doesn't intervene now with this kind of action, with this kind of discipline, they'll just be lost. We've seen this over and over. The only reason why there even is a Numbers chapter 25, why Israel has made it this far, is because God steps in and God intervenes. And so in that anger, he explains to Moses, we need to take action. The chiefs that are leading these people, they need to be executed so that my fierce anger won't stay on Israel. He wants to remove his anger from Israel, and how to do that? We need to remove these sources of sinfulness. So Moses goes to the judges of Israel and has the judges, commands the judges to kill the men who've done this act. In other words, we're not going to just spray everybody with stones. Have the judges who were in charge of groups of people find out who are the people that are worshiping this false god and eliminate them. So it's not just, just kill everybody, but find out who's who and enact justice on those who have disobeyed. Now scholars disagree on whether this was actually carried out or not, uh, whether they went this whole way or not. It doesn't tell us. We have the commands some people even think that God gave Moses one command, uh, take the chiefs and kill them, and then Moses did something else in verse 5. But I think this is just a condensed version. God has said more to Moses in verse 4 than we're seeing. 
It's condensed. It's packed in. Moses learned his lesson, didn't he, by striking the rock, and now he's not going to get into the land. His own disobedience has produced consequences in his own life. He's thankful to be alive. I don't think he's dishonoring what the Lord has said. I think he's carrying out details. We don't have all the details in verse 4. But that's, they're going after the leaders, and they're going after the participants. The leaders are pointed out as the chiefs in verse 4, and then the judges are going to help Moses single out the participants in verse 5. At least that's how I see it. And what we see here is God moving against his own people. Now, look, if you look at that, how it began there in that paragraph, Israel, the people are named in the beginning of verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim. In verse 3, so Israel yoked himself. But in between there, it's the people, the people. Uh, they are three times, verse 1 and twice in verse 2. The people, and then sandwiched in between their name, Israel. And you remember how Israel got its name? It can either be translated contends with God or God contends. And the name comes from Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Uh, and after that battle, after that long time of wrestling, uh, the angel of the Lord reveals to Jacob that his name will be Israel. And whether it means God contends, it could be that, God steps in and contends for his people, as he just did when Balaam was trying to curse them and God contended for Israel so that they wouldn't be cursed, instead would be blessed. But it could also mean wrestles with God or contends with God, as Jacob did, wrestling against God. And that's what Israel is doing. While God is contending for them, they're contending with God. And so there's irony built into the name, isn't it? And if you feel like your Christian life is like that, man, God is for me, but sometimes I mess up. I know. <laughs> that irony is built into the fabric. That's, that's the struggle, isn't it? And here we see that struggle because God is stepping in to contend for them and protect them from all these enemies, protect them from all these nations, and they're literally in bed with the nations. And so it is, the story is full of betrayal, presuming upon God's grace, doing what they want to do. And we need to be clear, it's, they're not cheating on God because they're uh, hooking up with a different ethnicity. It's not their ethnicity, it's their gods. Verse 2, the people invited to the sacrifices to, to have a barbecue. No, 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 look, to the sacrifices of their gods in verse 2, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. It wasn't just a barbecue, it was food that was specifically representing that if we bring this food before these gods, some will even say if we commit these uh, acts of literal physical adultery before these gods, we will get the rain that we need. And so it's not about ethnicity, it's about linking with a different, literally a different religion. And so God doles out his judgment. The reason why he doles out the judgment is because over and over again, God has made clear to them, you are going to move through the wilderness and into the land of promise. And as you do that, you are not to mingle and mix with the other nations. They will be a snare to you, he tells them in Exodus. I didn't have this queued up up here. You can just listen or you can turn to it in 2 Corinthians. It's the only other verse we'll be in and we'll be right back in, Gen uh, in Numbers chapter 25. 
I, om- I was going to leave this out. It's just, it's, listen to how Paul applies what we're learning in Numbers 25. I just want you to understand that it, we're not applying this sort of willy-nilly. So here's the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. Here's how he applies the concept that we learn in Numbers 25 that we learn throughout the Old Testament. And he's writing to the Corinthians, reminding them they are God's people. God dwells in them, which is one-upping the Old Testament where God dwelled among them, right? This is even more intense of a reality. And we're going to read 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Turn there or listen well. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You remember Moses just used, or the Lord just explained that to uh, Moses by telling them that they have yoked themselves in verse 5. They have yoked themselves to Baal. So here's Paul applying the concept. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So who are the Moabites in your life, the Midianites in your life? The unbelievers of the world. It's not about ethnicity. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? So not Baal, but a different, it's the same concept, a different God. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. How does Paul apply this concept? Not by going out and executing people. And we'll talk about how that applies in a moment. But what Paul is driving home to the Corinthians is, you all are not supposed to be different by just gathering once a week. It's how you live your life. If somebody is your neighbor, literally your neighbor next door, and they're lost, they don't have Christ, they're stuck in darkness. But you have light. You're not in darkness. God has snatched you up out of darkness and brought you into his covenant family. God dwells in your household. God dwells in your life. God has shined his light in your life. But your life looks exactly the same as the neighbor. Isn't that that something that needs to be addressed? If you enjoy all the same things they enjoy, you laugh at all the same jokes they laugh, you go to the same movies they go to, you're entertained by the same entertainment sources as they are. Isn't that a problem? It's unequally yoked. He's not saying you can't be friendly toward your neighbor. You can't love on your neighbor. But if we're the same, if we walk the same way they do, I mean, Psalm 1 blesses the man who does not walk the way they walk. There is a distinction in the life of the Christian, and that is the distinction that God is jealous to protect. He's not up there going, it would really be great if you lived distinct lives. And some of us have had some things blow up in our lives, and it's been a source of pain, and we're like, God, why? God, why? We don't always have the answer, but sometimes I think God allows some difficult things in our lives to snap us awake and get us back on track. 
In Numbers chapter 25, he is a perfect father, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6. He is using this scenario to sort of purify the camp, get his people back on track, and to wake them up. He is not a father who ignores how we behave. He wants us to be separate. Separate. That does not mean you can't work at a secular place. You can't go to college and room with somebody who's an unbeliever. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that the way we live our lives, what we worship, what we enjoy, it is going to be distinct. And if we're doing that well, a lot of the people in our lives, we don't have to ask them to, to, <laughs> to be a little distant from us. They will distance themselves if you pursue the Lord uh, vigorously. While a hero steps in and separates the people from God's judgment, God's anger is upon his people. We're going to find out in a moment that there is also a plague that broke out. This is sort of a general plague that's broken out among the people. So the execution was for the leadership, but there's a plague that's broken out. We've seen plagues before, and the plagues break out when God, God's healing, gracious hand is sort of removed from his people. Plagues are breaking out, and it's his anger upon the people that causes it. And then verse 6 to to 9, we see a hero step in that separates the people from this judgment. It says, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. So think about this. The people are like, man, we really messed up. And this plague is broken out. We've lost a lot of our leaders or we're about to lose a lot of our leaders to execution, wherever this fits in the timeline. And they're having a lament service. They're, they're weeping over all of the sin. And it, I mean, it's not this small of a congregation. It's, this is a massive thing. But in front of the leadership, in front of the people, you've got this Midianite woman and one of the leaders of Israel who's still around, literally in front of everybody going into a tent to do the adultery that they're weeping over. They don't care. This is not like God just throws lightning bolts without warning. This is a repeated rebellious heart that in front of the highest exposure to truth, I don't care. It's a big forget you to God in front of everybody. Would you be upset? Phineas was. Phineas was a priest. His father was Eliezer, whose father was Aaron. Verse 7, it says, When Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them with with the spear, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So they lost a lot of people. In this rebellion, they lost a lot of people in this sin. And they're sitting around going, what do we do? Oh, we're so sorry. Oh, we're so sorry. But somebody had to take action. Do we get stuck there sometimes? We're kind of stuck in the weeping, but we still haven't taken care of business. Phineas is honored here because he didn't just weep. He took care of business. 
And so he took a spear, impaled the two of them, and that, what Moses is saying here, is that is what stopped the plague. The plague was stopped because Phineas took action. This is not the main point of this, but because it's today, and I don't normally do holiday sermons or anything like that, but I do think that this is uh, not absent in the text either. I was thinking about where Phineas came from. His father was pretty good, Eliezer. Eliezer doesn't have any outstanding episodes where, look, Eliezer did this and Eliezer did that. Eliezer was good. But Phineas gets this heroic episode, and he will go down in history and has gone down in history. And we'll see that in a moment as this hero for this reason. But Eliezer, his dad, he was, he was good. He was a good priest. But Eliezer's dad was mixed. Eliezer's father literally built the golden calf. Imagine having that as an embarrassing track record. Oh, isn't your son Aaron? Yeah. Were you around when he built that golden calf? Here we go again. Every time I walk somewhere, somebody's got to bring up the stuff that my dad did, right? If that feels familiar to you, welcome to the club. This is, this is life. Now, Aaron wasn't all bad. And we saw a couple weeks ago, didn't we, that Aaron's death was greeted with the mourning of the people. And so he recovered from his mistakes. God proved Aaron is my guy by making Aaron's bud staff bud. You remember that? Everybody show up with your staff, and God's going to choose the one he chose. And he didn't choose someone with a perfect track record. So some of you as dads feel like, man, you've messed up majorly, and there's some stuff that you cannot expunge from your record. That's true. You can still raise an amazing son. Your son can still do big things. You can still do big things because God is a God of grace. Think about Eliezer's brothers. Nadab and Abihu were the guys that offered the strange fire and were killed immediately on the spot. So Eliezer comes from this sort of mixed track record of a family. And God demonstrates through Eliezer and then through Phineas that if you will follow the Lord, you will do the thing that the Lord wants you to do. You are not defined by your lineage. You are not defined by your father's mistakes or your grandfather's history. Phineas comes from this same line, and it's from this same line that God is going to do this amazing work to rescue the people of Israel from this plague. And the reason why I say I don't think it's absent in this text is Phineas's lineage is mentioned in verse 7. When Phineas, you know Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, see? And you know who Eliezer is, and you know who Aaron is. And then he says it again in verse 11. Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest. Yeah, you said that already. I know, I'm saying it again. Because Phineas comes from a mixed context. And the Lord, as he was still able to use Aaron, used Phineas in this situation regardless of his lineage. It wasn't because of his lineage that he's honored. It is because of the action that he took now in front of him. The thing that he has to do in front of him right now. And that's how the Lord leads. He wants you to lead with the things that are in front of you right now, not staying stuck in memory lane. So Phineas takes this action. He executes this couple that is brazenly rebelling and causing this plague on the people. He's not just mad because he wanted the woman. <laughs> it's not a jealous rage. 
It's a particular kind of jealousy. It's a jealousy that matches God's jealousy. And some of us may think, well, jealousy is bad. You're not supposed to be jealous. Oh, my husband, he's so jealous. Oh, my wife, why is she so jealous? Well, yeah, they could. There's like a psycho kind of jealousy. But there is an appropriate jealousy. If you find out your spouse is cheating on you and you just have no feelings about it, like, huh, that's weird. Maybe I'll get another spouse. Something already was broken there. There is an appropriate kind of jealousy. You are not supposed to do that. We made a covenant, and that belongs within our covenant. It doesn't belong outside of that covenant. That's an appropriate jealousy. And so when God is described as jealous and when Phineas is described as jealous, it's the right kind of jealousy. You're not supposed to be doing that. So verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy. There's a wrong kind of jealousy, but this was the right kind of jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. There are things in your own life, there might be things, hopefully not right now, that we're aware of, but there might be things that creep into our own church, our own congregation, that should tick you off if it's not of the Lord. And what churches do, what families do, what individuals do oftentimes is, yeah, we know that's not right, but yeah, we just excuse it. It's like the husband who's like, yeah, I know my wife is cheating, but I mean, whatever. That's a worthless husband. We're supposed to be jealous. We are supposed to be driven to a righteous kind of anger. Not a vindictive anger where we just want to go after people to, like, kill them, metaphorically or otherwise, but a kind of jealousy that is jealous for the Lord. And look at verse 12. Therefore I give to him my covenant of vengeance. No, 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 my covenant of peace. Why is Phineas going to go down remembered for a covenant of peacemaking? It's because of going after that couple that he's made peace for everyone else with the Lord. And so Phineas is jealous in a way that makes peace, not in a way that destroys. Although there was this instance that justice and judgment had to happen so that the congregation can experience peace with God. And so there's things happening here on two levels. On the first level, Phineas is separating his people from adultery. And as we think about how this applies to the congregation in the New Testament, this is the congregation in the Old Testament, and scholars and pastors will debate about how many things are the same and how many things are different. But again, you can use Paul's letters to the Corinthians to show how Paul uses the Old Testament to apply it to a New Testament congregation. And Paul never tells the people, take these sinners in your congregation that are ruining the whole loaf of bread with their leaven and hang them out in the lawn For everyone on Devon to drive by and go, yeah, they hang people. No. There's too many differences there. We're we're not a theocracy. CFC is not a government. There's just so many differences. We don't do capital punishment. That's the government's role. But there are similarities, and when a church just lets everybody do whatever they want and we all just turn a blind eye, 
we're basically weeping at the tent when we're singing our songs. Oh, forgive us, forgive us, but we're not, we're not spearing anything. That's a problem. And so many people bristle at the idea of church discipline, but they shouldn't bristle at it. Many parents bristle at the idea of discipline. How do those kids come out? Never told no, never told they're wrong. They cheat, they get a trophy. What kind of generation does that produce? Sadly, a generation that doesn't know how to show up for work. You all know that. And we do that to our kids, maybe because, well, we were disciplined so harshly, I want to be, be super nice. Don't react against your parents. Go to the Bible and see what's right. And as a church, we don't want to go, well, if we, if we point out things that are wrong, then people are going to get disgruntled and we might lose people. If we lose people, we lose money. So you see, now what's the bottom line? The bottom line is not money. The bottom line is not how many members we have on the roll. The bottom line is jealousy for what's right. And the reason why we point out what's wrong, it's not like we're doing that constantly. Y'all are a good bunch of people. I don't feel like my calendar every week is filled with making phone calls. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. But there are times where somebody is blind or caught in a snare, and they don't see it as a snare yet. They still they kind of like it. And the church has to come alongside and say, hey, <laughs> that's, that's rebellion. That grieves the Lord. We're here as a covenant people to follow this heavenly father, this father whose name is hallowed and holy. And we don't just climb in his lap when we want candy and then trash the house the whole rest of the time. But we're jealous for how the father wants us to run the house. So church discipline is necessary as uh, this purification of the congregation was necessary in the past. There is a purification of the congregation that's necessary today. And if you ever move on from Christian Fellowship Church and you're looking for another church, there are many things you need to check out. Do they preach the Word of God? Not there's a Bible verse in the TED Talk. Do they preach the Word of God? Do they adhere to it? What's the faith statement look like? Do they believe the right things about what God's Word says? One of those things in the lineup should be, do they practice church discipline? Now, you can have a crazy church, like I said, the, the psycho spouse who takes jealousy to an ungodly level. You can have a church that takes it to an ungodly level. But a church that doesn't practice it at all, I guarantee you the bottom line is dollars. They don't care about you. They want you to come and sit in the seats and put money in the tray. They don't care. If you're in the tent committing adultery against our holy God. The church that comes alongside you and lovingly tells you, you've got to stop this now. Or you're not a brother. Or you're not a sister. And if you're not a brother, you're not a sister. You're not in the family. If you're not a family, you're not a sheep, you're a goat. And where do the goats go? That's not evil, that's loving. It's evil to go, well, I know where they're going, but what am I going to do, lose the friendship? I like it when they come to the barbecue. That's evil. Because we're putting comforts. We're so scared of having awkward conversations, we don't have the loving conversations that need to be had. That goes for parents with kids having the weird conversation. Sit down. Spouse to spouse, I need to talk to you about something. Christian to Christian. 
Why? Because if we don't do it, we let this mingling that happened in Numbers 25 continue, and when that continues, it doesn't go well with the people that mingle. So on the one hand, it's Phineas showing that we have to be jealous to protect the purity of the congregation, and that is what we have to do today. There's so many New Testament passages I can go to, I'm not going to go to right now, that confirm everything I'm saying, that confirm what I'm saying. In Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, go read those on your own. Does Paul hate the congregation? Is Jesus teaching his disciples to hate the church? No, he's teaching them to love the church and to protect the church because there's boundaries and there's rules. Everybody that says, I got a jersey on, I'm a Christian, isn't necessarily one. So how do we call them out so that they will become one? Right? If you don't call somebody out on fake Christianity, you'll never get them into real Christianity. You just let them assume they're real and they're fake. And who knew the difference? We did. And so we've got to be clear on the difference, not to be jerks, to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to help people along. The purpose of church discipline, if you write anything down, the purpose of church discipline is restoration and purity of the congregation. It's not vindictiveness. It's not who took the pastor off this week. It's not about personal feelings, except the personal feeling of we want you to be on the right track. Uh, Let me just linger here for a couple more seconds. Uh, If you notice just how bad this is, in verse 1, it's Moab that they're cheating on God with. In verse 6, it's Midian that they're cheating on God with. If you remember the last week's sermon, these were the two people who hired Balaam to curse them. And while they had God contending for them, they cheated on God with their enemies. And the reason why I bring that point out is because they didn't exchange God for Baal. They weren't like, forget you, God, I'm going to go worship Baal. They said, we like this, I just also want this in my life. See? They wanted to be a part of the congregation. They came to the congregation with the weeping, but when the media night girl showed up, he's like, hey, hold my Bible, I'll be right back, and he went into the tent. He wants this, and he wants that. There is a category of person who just doesn't want church, they don't want God. Okay, we talk to them at one level. There's another category of person who says they want God, but they don't because they're mixing God things with worldly things. It's that mixture that is so dangerous because people think they're okay because they came to church, they have a Bible, they know where numbers is, you know. They teach their kids a couple verses. There, there are godly things in their lives, but it's mixed in with a bunch of things that don't belong in the life of a person who is godly. And the reason why that's so important to point out is because the irony here is they are mixing in with people who do not love them, who do not want what's best for them, because in the prior episode, they were hiring a prophet to curse them. And we think that the best thing we can do for our unbelieving neighbors or for people in the church that are really confused about what it means to be a Christian is to just be nice to them, and over time, the niceness will just smother away their sin. Nonsense. That'll only head in one direction, you compromising as well. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if somebody's caught in a trespass, go out and bear that person's burden, but be careful, lest that burden become yours. 
So they are with the Moabites, with the Midianites. Look at these women. Look at this God. Hey, they prayed to the Baal God, and they got, they got their crops rained on. Let's mix the two. Let's intermingle it. Let's partner with them in some way. Let's stop being so against the world. That's what ticks everybody so off, is how against everything we are. We're known for what we're against. Let's roll with them. Let's be, no, their wisdom is not your wisdom. Their wisdom is supposed to be foolishness to you, and your wisdom that you get from God is foolishness to them. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. So we don't want to be like the Israelites here where we come in Sunday morning, we praise God for protection, we praise God for His blessing, but the rest of the time we're mixing with worldliness. The other level here that's happening is this deal of atonement. If you looked at it in verse 13, God is telling Moses, Phineas is going to go down as this maker of peace. This covenant of peace is going to be attached to his name. And it shall be to him and his descendants, in verse 13, after him, the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. I want to try to do this quickly, but the point here is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this atoning work in order to make a pure people for himself. Verse 10 to 13, we see that Phineas had the right kind of jealousy, was God's jealousy. And so he takes action based on being jealous for God's group, for God's house. This is what Jesus is doing when he makes the whip of cords and starts whipping animals and people out of the house, cleansing the house. You've turned this house into something else. Get out. This house is for a purpose. Jesus wasn't saying nobody could be in this house, but you can't be in this house and be like that. The pagans do that. Unbelievers do that. Some of us have grown up in churches that didn't make that distinction well, and we grew up and we're like, man, church is just hypocrisy, and then we leave. You know who did that? The world didn't do that. That church they grew up in did that. By turning God's house into something else besides something that's for His name. And they didn't take it seriously. People want authenticity. They want truth. If they walk away, let them walk away because we gave them truth. Don't let them walk away because we try to compromise with truth to try to keep them from leaving. That will, that will just end up making people leave. They see through the nonsense. So Jesus takes up that work. He takes up that action of the covenant of peace. And even though Phineas's priesthood is told to us to be a perpetual thing in verse 13, we know when you read the book of Hebrews, only Jesus' priesthood is the forever priesthood. Phineas is dead. And so are his kids. And so are their kids. Somebody had to step in to actually make this perpetual. And the real, the real, I mean, I know I keep saying irony, but this is dripping with it, this whole passage. Phineas makes atonement by taking a spear and piercing the guilty couple. Jesus makes atonement by taking the spear himself to free the guilty couple. If I'm looking at this passage, I'm going, I'm, I'm not Phineas. I'm that couple in the tent. I'm the people weeping at the gate. And I need to be rescued from my own sin. And thank God that even though he would have been right to spear me, he pierced his son instead. And his son makes a kind of peace, a kind of peacemaking that allows me entrance into this family 
without God being a compromiser. Without God just sort of picking up the rug and like just shove the sinfulness under there. Let's pretend it didn't exist and we'll have peace in our family. That's not peace. That's just awkward. And that's ruinous. God justly handles the sin by putting it on His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have access to the peace that He offers. That's amazing. Wherever you've been, whatever your condition you came in this morning, Christ's atoning work makes access to the Father through Him, through the cross. You repent, you confess that outside of Jesus' work, you cannot make your way to God. You cannot please the Father. But if you come to Christ, Christ's work covers you. It makes atonement for you. He took every nail, jab, scar, wound that we would ever deserve and took it on himself to make a way for us. We move quickly here through the rest of the passage. We see in the last portion, 14th and following, the name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. So you see how this wasn't just some random couple. These are two leaders linking tribes and linking the leadership of the two people together. If this was allowed to continue, it would have been uh, the end of God's covenant people Uh, They would have just mixed in. The Lord uses this to purify His people, to save them, to rescue them. In verse 16, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. So what God is reminding the Israelites is uh, they are not here to help you. They are here to harass you, harass them back. Yeah. Now, if we lazily apply that today, we go, the world is against us, let's be against them. Let's harass them, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of thing. But what we see is Jesus communicating to his disciples, the way I reverse the piercing, you all are going to reverse that too. You save the vengeance and the judgment and the execution stuff, you save that to me. Vengeance isn't wrong. God said vengeance is mine. It is not the church to take vengeance on the world. That's God's job. What is our job? Well, we don't harass them back. When we take their harassing, right, when the enemy persecutes, what do we do back? We love them. We love them. We are a witness toward them of this reversal that Jesus Christ has accomplished so we don't go out there with spears. The spear thing has been taken care of. So we can go out there with just the peace part, the peacemaking part. And brothers and sisters, we cannot do that if we're just the same as them. There has to be an us and them. That needs to be clear in our lives so that we can invite them to go from them to us. But there's no invitation to be had. There's no border to be crossed if we just blend everything, see? So that doesn't mean we're jerks when uh, your unbelieving neighbor invites you over and you go to their fridge and you point out the things that they shouldn't be drinking. You go through their DVD stack and like, I can't believe you watched this. That, this, this is, these are the things that we did. No, instead we, we appreciate the invitation. I'm using this imaginary scenario. But hopefully you're you know, invited to things by unbelieving friends. 
But when they ask you to do things, or ask you if you do things that in your conviction are contrary to the Word of God, you don't beat them over the head with it, but you don't pretend like it's not there either. You communicate why there's a difference, why we raise our kids differently, why we speak a certain way or don't speak a certain way. So it's not, I'm not hanging out with you, you use the S word. No, but when I hang out with you, I won't use the S word, see? And so it's not that we withdraw and live in our caves. We go out into the world, to the corners of the earth, but we go out armed with the gospel. And we cannot be clear on the gospel if our lives just look the same. And so the application of this passage to our church today is that Christ purifies His church with His atoning work. That means there is a standing invitation to cross from death to life. But because Christ purifies His church with His atonement, we're to maintain our distinction of purification from the world. And when we don't, it hurts our message. When we don't, it hurts our church. When we don't, it hurts our homes. It hurts our marriages. It hurts our parenting. When we're not clear in a loving way, in a peace-offering way, when we're not clear on what God is jealous for in our lives. And we need God's grace to do that well. If you're in here this morning and you feel like, boy, I've, I've been all over the place, I haven't done this well, I, I also want to say none of us has. We lean on God's grace for it. But leaning on God's grace is not presuming on God's grace. Rather than contending with the Lord, let's go with what He's jealous for. Let's understand what makes Him pleased and live lives that do that in contradistinction to the lives of the people around us so that they will see the difference. And hopefully we can extend that invitation to also enjoy that difference that Christ makes. Let's pray.